Let's turn our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Saying this a number of times, that uh, it is my intention to provide these outline handouts for basically every sermon now because of the feedback I've gotten that they're helpful. So uh, this is no exception. There is one on the back table. If anyone missed it, they can get up and and, uh, grab one. That's no problem. Well, last week, we even sort of stepped outside our normal Sunday morning routine to just take both services last week, dealing with 1 Thessalonians at the end of chapter 4, because it's such a foundational text for our faith, for our hope in Christ, about um, the coming of the Lord, and specifically, um, the dead in Christ, and what, what that will be like for them, alongside us who remain uh, until the coming of the Lord, perhaps. So Paul began uh, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, uh, addressing the church in Thessalonica about Christians among them who had died. Let me just read that that text again to, to get us back up to speed in our minds. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, meaning those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So your grief shouldn't, there should be grief, but it shouldn't be like the world's grief when they don't have God, so they don't have hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So Paul had applied the words of the Lord Jesus to the grief of these Thessalonians for their fellow Christians who had died. But now, Paul's going to continue to remind them about Jesus' teaching regarding his coming, but from a different angle, focused more on how this will be a sudden and unwelcome event for the world in general. And then how we as Christians um, should see ourselves in that context. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11 is about the sudden day of the Lord. The sudden day of the Lord. It's still the same topic, essentially. The coming, uh, he used that Greek word parousia, and we talked about how that had a lot of connotations back then. The coming of the Lord. But Paul's not done talking about the coming of the Lord. He's going to say, is the big idea here of our text today, that the Lord's arrival will catch those in darkness unprepared. When Christ comes, those in spiritual darkness will be caught unprepared. So let's read our sermon text for this week, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 5. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, concerning the timing of the Lord's coming, that is, <laughs> You have no need to have anything written to you. 
For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Unfolding this big idea that the Lord's arrival will catch those in darkness unprepared. First of all, verses 1 through 3 tell us that that day will be sudden destruction for the world. Sudden destruction for the world in general. Again, he, he addresses the times and seasons. He says, you don't, there's something you don't really need me to teach you about. You already know that we can't predict the timing of the Lord's return. Um, similar phrase, like, like Jesus said in Acts 1, verse 7, to his apostles just before he ascended to heaven. He said, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And Jesus had said in Matthew 20, as recorded in Matthew 24, his um, teaching on the Mount of Olives about um, his coming. And that, and I remind you, Paul is is reflecting a lot on, on Jesus' teaching there and what he says here in First Thessalonians. Jesus had said Matthew 24:36, but concerning that day and hour, the day and hour of his coming, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. Nor the Son. I would take that as referring to Jesus in his, according to his human nature, not knowing. But the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. That is, just like in Noah's day, people were going about business as usual. It's not that there were no big events in the world, no wars, rumors of wars, whatever. But, but still, they, people were just going about life. They, they had no clue they were about to be swept away in the flood. That's, that's the point of comparison. Uh, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, he says. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, Jesus says. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming. Sound familiar from Paul? Uh, If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You yourselves, Paul says, are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That's why 
we can't predict the times and seasons. Jesus said, for the world in general, it'll be like, it'll be as unexpected as a thief coming at night when everyone's asleep. And he sneaks in successfully because no one knows to expect him, to watch for him. So Paul, again, is using this image, a thief in the night. That's how the day of the Lord will come. So here Paul speaks of Christ coming to judge the living and the dead as the day of the Lord. It's a phrase he got from the Old Testament. Uh, The Bible sometimes just says that day or the day to talk about the end of the age this way. So sometimes it's that really short way of saying it. Uh, Other times, there's other phrases throughout the Bible, all talking about the same general time frame and same general event. The day of judgment, the last day, the day of wrath, the day of God, the day when the Son of Man is revealed, the day of Christ, and so on. But the one amazing thing that we shouldn't miss here, again, um, you have to really go through the Bible with your eyes closed to be someone who says Jesus is not God. Uh, As Robert Carr mentions here, amazingly, Paul reads the Old Testament text about the day of the Lord. Old Testament, that's the day of Yahweh, the Lord God. He reads those Old Testament texts about the day of the Lord and concludes that Christ is the Lord of whom the Old Testament speaks. The day of the Lord is when the Lord Jesus shows up. Again, just part of Paul's um, firm belief and teaching that Jesus is the Lord himself. The Lord God. That's just for free on the side there. Um, But... Some people, uh, some folks, I'm not going too far today into wrong interpretations of texts like this, of the end times and whatnot, but uh, some folks want to, to make a distinction and say, well, the day of the Lord he talks about is different than the coming that he just talked about of, of Christ. Well, no, they're parallel. They're the same idea, just different words for the same thing. In the next letter that Paul writes to these same people, 2 Thessalonians 2, he, he puts them side by side as if they're the same thing. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, that coming when the saints are gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. His point is now about, now concerning, now about that coming of Jesus, about that time when we're gathered to him, some people are trying to tell you it's already happened. Don't believe them. The day of the Lord has not come. See, same thing. Coming of the Lord, day of the Lord, same thing. When it does come, though, Paul says it will come like a thief in the night. Now, uh, we could, you know, we could go too far. It's easy to go too far if you only take one side of what Scripture says about end times events. Uh, later in Second Thessalonians 2, and we'll get there, of course, in our sermon series, Paul clarifies that believers, those who are spiritually awake and alert, they'll, they'll know that certain events, when they happen, are immediate precursors of Christ's coming. They're, they're, that means it's here right now. But the world in general... For them, Christ's arrival will be quite sudden and unwelcome. 
Like Jesus himself said, even the angels can't predict the timing of this event. So there's a balance here. In one sense, there are some things which we know will happen. Paul teaches it, 2 Thessalonians 2. There are some events um, which we know will happen immediately before Jesus actually appears in power and glory. At the same time, not even believers can predict the times and seasons. Once that complex of events surrounding the day of the Lord begins, it'll all be very sudden. And the point here and many places in Scripture is it'll be too late for repentance. It's not like you're going to arrive at at, um, a time just before Jesus returns and then it'll be so obvious. Oh, he's coming this year. Better get ready. Oh, I think I'll repent now. As if the human heart could just move itself to repentance in the first place without God's grace. But you know what I'm saying. When the day of the Lord comes and all its attendant, all its connected events, um, all God's people have been brought in. The day of judgment is at hand. There's no more opportunity for repentance. Again, we'll talk about that more in Second Thessalonians 2. So we find this same balance of trigger events and yet suddenness, even like in the book of the Revelation, where again, Jesus, he's talking about um, the world powers being gathered together of one accord to do Satan's bidding in one climactic uh, assault on God and his people. And there in Revelation sixteen fifteen, Jesus says, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Well, verse 3 in our text, Paul explains a little further. He says, while people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains, upon a pregnant woman. I know several of our ladies know what that's all about, very personally labor pains now it's all worth it uh, when you have a baby to show for it right so some places in scripture it's not so negative some place labor pains are mentioned as leading up to something good in the end that's not what's happening here sometimes labor pains are mentioned as something that's agonizing but inescapable right ladies and husbands who've been there with your wives and the labor pains start You're not going to be able to just say, nope, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to go through labor. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen all the way. There's no stopping this train. That's the idea here. When people are saying, when they have a false sense of security in this world, there's peace and security. That's when sudden destruction will come. And it'll come like labor pains on a pregnant woman, so they will not escape. In fact, the, the, the wording in the Greek is the idea they will absolutely not, certainly not escape. He used the same sort of wording when he says, uh, you know, those who are asleep in Jesus will certainly, um, those who are alive when the Lord comes will certainly not perceive those who are asleep in Jesus. People are caught unprepared by the day of the Lord at that point, because they've bought into a false security, a shallow sense of peace. 
you can have yourself somewhat convinced that things are going to be okay and it's all lies. Or it's just based on, okay, facts that don't really matter in the end analysis. Um, some people think Paul here is actually drawing on the Old Testament prophets like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, uh, where religious leaders are said to be promising a false peace with God. They say, peace, peace, there is no peace. Um, but the, that phrase, peace and security, then others say, well, that exact phrase doesn't show up there, but it does show up when we, in some monuments and things we see from the Roman world where the Roman Empire would promise peace and security. <laughs> um, you're to look to us, the powers of this world, for peace and security. So there's that possibility, too, as background to what Paul's saying here. So in those, those Old Testament texts, religious leaders are promising a false peace with God. Ancient Rome, the state promised peace and security. So there's various, but it's worth noting, people can have a false security for, for different reasons. They can have a false security by treating earthly powers as their saviors, what's going to take care of them. Or they can have a false peace reinforced by false religion, even false Christianity. Um, and it's so shallow that the, the, the basis uh, for them thinking they have peace with God is so thin. But when the day of the Lord arrives, they will not escape. The doom of the wicked is just as certain as the resurrection of the righteous. In context here. What is the sudden destruction, though, that Paul is referring to? Sudden destruction will come on them. What should we picture? What is that? Again, I'm not going into a lot of um, interesting systems of thought that have developed in the wrong direction about this. Um, that would be a very complicated series all its own. But I think Scripture is very clear here. Paul uses the very same word for destruction in the very same context later in 2 Thessalonians 1. Uh, turn with me there for a moment, if you can. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-10. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-10. He's going to talk about the return of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, from the angle of his judgment on the wicked, particularly those who persecute his church. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. These people in Thessalonica were being persecuted by their non-Christian neighbors. And to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of, here, here's the word, but with an, another word attached, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. First Thessalonians 5, it's sudden destruction. Here it's eternal destruction. The punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. What's that talking about? Clearly it's talking about damnation. The Lord Jesus will come in flaming fire with his angels. Well, as we sang, as we saw from scripture already, 
the angels will throw the righteous, in, uh, the righteous, they will throw the wicked, sorry about that, throw the wicked into the fiery furnace. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what it's talking about. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day. Likewise, part of the picture of that sudden destruction is what ushers in that day of judgment. When people, we've, we've, we talked about this in the last sermon in various ways. When people stand before the Lord Jesus to be judged for what they've done in this life. What immediately precedes that? When Jesus comes, what happens to this world? It's destroyed. It is the end of the world. Look at 2 Peter 3 real quick. He uses some of the very same imagery that Paul uses. This is 2 Peter 3, though. We'll read starting in verse 3. 2 Peter 3, 3, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? His parousia. That is, they'll mock the fact, they'll, they'll scoff at and mock the idea that Jesus has promised to come in power and glory. That he's promised to return. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, Ever since the olden days, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Things like that just don't happen. The world is always going to be the way it is. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. That is, God miraculously created the world. It wasn't just there. And that by means of these, the word of God and water, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, by God's word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, the promise of his coming, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But, and here's where you really have to listen closely. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That sound like the same topic Paul's been writing about? Yeah. The day of the Lord like a thief. And what will happen then? And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Later, that, that's where we're stopping for now. Later it says, but after that, we believers expect a new heaven, a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. A new creation. But our point for now is, when Christ comes, the world ends in fire. And all the unrighteous dead even are raised to stand before Jesus as their judge. And... That is why it's so unwelcome. Not only that people will lose absolutely everything if they are living for this world. Then they will be under the wrath of God forever after that. In resurrected bodies, resurrected to judgment, as Jesus says in John 5. 
Okay, so we finally got to the second point. I knew the first point would take a while, verses 1 through 3, but we've seen that 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 day will be sudden destruction for the world. Now, verses 4 through 5, secondly, that day will not be so for those who are part of the day. Here, Paul does something very interesting. He's He's mentioned the day of the Lord, and now he takes that idea of day. And uses a, he creates a contrast between day and night, light and dark, being awake or asleep. And so those for whom the day of the Lord is viewed positively um, are then associated with the day and with the light. So he says, verse 4, But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So yes, for the world, it'll be sudden destruction. Sudden and unwelcome. The worst thing that could ever happen to them. But it's not that for you. Because you're part of the coming day. You belong to that day. You belong to the daylight, not the darkness. That's what he's saying. You are children of light, children of the day. It's typical... um, Biblical wording, children of, means you're characterized by this. This is what describes you. Uh, you. You belong to the light, to the day. It reminds me of Malachi 3 and 4, where God says, there's coming a day, coming a time, when you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. That is something to be burned. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, what will that day be like? For you who fear my name, the sun, S-U-N, the sun of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. That kind of exuberance and joy. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So this is not a new concept in Scripture that Paul's picking up on. The day of the Lord is destruction for the wicked, but it's daylight and freedom and glory for the children of God. So it won't be sudden destruction for those who are part of the day. That brings us to the third point, verses 6 through 8. So, speaking of those who are part of the day, their behavior should agree with the light of that day. Or we could say it this way, if if we are believers in Jesus Christ, our behavior should agree with the light of the coming day. It should be at home with that. Verse 6, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. People act a certain way at night that they don't normally act during the daytime. It's fitting at night, but not uh, during the day. Um, and 
if we're talking about literal sleep at literal night, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. But this is obviously a spiritual figure of speech. And it shouldn't be hard for us, right? We know darkness represents evil and falsehood and hiding from God and sin and the reign of the prince of darkness, the devil, the sway he holds over those in rebellion against God. That's the darkness. But we don't belong to the darkness. Let's not act like we do. Let's not just go to sleep spiritually. Let's not be asleep to the things of God, to God's truth, and how it applies to us right now. Further, he says, those who get drunk are drunk at night. And of course, Scripture says drunkenness is evil, is a sin, and it's, it's dissipation. But those who get drunk are drunk at night. We need to keep, keep our wits about us. And um, I like what, um, what G.K. Beale says here about spiritual drunkenness. He says to be drunk spiritually is to imbibe too much of the world's way of looking at things and not enough of the way God views reality. To be intoxicated with the world's wine is to be numbed to feeling any fear in the present, uh, in the present of a coming judgment. Then, when Christ finally comes and shocks people out of their spiritual paralysis, they will be both cognitively and ethically surprised and mournful over their punishment. People who are spiritually drunk, the, the point is, they're, they're not in their right minds as they're thinking about their lives, about the God of heaven, about his approaching coming, about the day of judgment. John 3, verses 19 and 20 says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So if we are, if we are of the darkness, we are going to be hiding from God and not be able to be not be able to have confidence before God about how we're living our lives before him. In Ephesians 5, Paul, again, speaks in similar terms here about our conduct. Ephesians 5, 5, You may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, they want something more than they want God, anyone like that has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Goodness, righteousness, truth. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Likewise, Romans 13, 11-14, Paul says, Besides this you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
the night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness, take off those unfitting pajamas of the works of darkness, and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This brings us kind of full circle back to our main sermon text where Paul says, um, you, have an, you have armor to put on. You have a fight to fight and you need to be equipped for that fight while you're here in the darkness but not of the darkness. Let me get back here in my Bible to the right text. There we are. So he says, since we belong to the day, in verse 8, let us be sober. That word also has a connotation of self-controlled. Sober, self-controlled. Have our wits about us. Having put on the breastplate or breastpiece of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So in place of what people do in the dark, that most people around us wear as their clothing, we put on the armor of light. And these are things that we already have to some degree if we are true believers. Faith, love, hope. Paul likes those three, doesn't he? Faith, hope, love, faith, love, hope. Those three. There's a daily sense in which we have to be sure we are using our armor and put it on. Um, so, yes, this armor is like, it's not the deeds of darkness, so it involves different deeds, different kinds of activities. But it's more than just activities. The armor is the fruitful virtues of light that have to oppose the darkness. Things like faith, love, hope. That's our real armor to fight the darkness. Um, we live in an age where light is already breaking in on entrenched darkness. So battle is inevitable. And again, in Ephesians, Paul says there are personal malicious powers at work to promote the darkness. And they're not going to go without a fight. Ephesians 6.12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we have to put on armor, the armor of light, to battle the demonic hosts of darkness. Because they're resisting the coming day. They're doing everything they can to keep people in the dark, not concerned about the coming Savior and Lord. Not concerned about their judge. So, if we belong to the light, but we're surrounded by the darkness, it's going to be necessary to exhibit self-control, self-sacrifice, steadfast endurance. And what better picture of that than a soldier armed for battle? Again, this armor is not just, just our activities and our actions, but it's settled qualities or graces. In fact, as we just read in Romans 13, it's Jesus Christ himself put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's him that we must put on. His power and his virtue are our armor. 
when we get when we begin Ephesians Sunday mornings here very soon, we'll eventually get to Ephesians six and that larger list of the full armor of God, right? Um, all those texts, uh, that one in Ephesians, Romans thirteen, and then the one we have before us now, put on faith and love as as a breastplate and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Um, those all reflect Isaiah fifty nine, where God Himself puts on armor. For the salvation of his people and the judgment of the wicked. He goes out to war. And it says in Isaiah 59 there, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. So Paul, Paul when, he, when he talks to Christians about the armor they need on, he calls it the armor of God. You need the same armor in one sense that God wears. Um, he wears it as our Savior. We need but... Notice, God wears the helmet of salvation in Isaiah because he comes to save us. We wear, 1 Thessalonians, we wear the, as a helmet the hope of salvation. We hope in God's deliverance, his salvation. Again, G.K. Beale says, if we don't have the helmet of hope, things in life will come crashing down, cracking our spiritual skulls and incapacitating us spiritually. If we are uninformed about what God's word says and we are not living in close relationship to him and his word, then catastrophic events like the death of one we care for, like it's mentioned in chapter four here, can harm us. We need to guard our our heads in a spiritual sense by always keeping in front of us the hope of salvation, which is the coming of the Lord. That it, hope is the future forward-looking thing. Jesus will come and complete our salvation. He will deliver us in the final and fullest sense. That brings us to number four, the last point, verses 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, speaking to believers, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. It says God has not destined us to one thing, but to something else. But God has destined us, foreordained us, that's the idea of that word in the New Testament. He has foreordained, destined his people, not to wrath, but to be saved through our Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, in in one very real sense, we who are believers now in Jesus Christ, we've already been saved, delivered from the dominion of our sins and and the guilt and consequence of our sins. But there's also a future sense of salvation that the scripture speaks of like it does here. Final salvation. Romans 8 calls it our public adoption. The redemption of our bodies is that final salvation. Romans 5, verse 9, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, by Christ's blood, much more shall we be saved, future, by him from the wrath of God. That is, in the day of judgment, he will deliver us from what otherwise would have been our doom as well. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we, future, be saved by his life. But notice, here again is the gospel. We would be subject to God's wrath 
on the day of judgment, but Jesus died for us. Very plain here. That's what makes the difference. We would be under the wrath of God on the day of judgment, but Jesus died for us. He took God's wrath hanging over us for our sins. He took that on himself. Willingly. And he suffered the just penalty of a holy God on our unrighteousness. And for those who believe in him as that Savior and Lord. That is applied to their account. And they are free, utterly free from any condemnation by God's law, by God's wrath against our violations of his law. Now, Paul says this is all true so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live with him. Awake or asleep when? At his coming. Again, he's going back to what he talked about in chapter 4. So that when Christ comes, whether we are dead or alive at the time physically, we will join him in that everlasting life. We will live with him. And Paul's point, of course, is that the same positive end of being with Christ in that new creation awaits all Christians, living or dead. So Paul has come full circle now to the beginning of the larger section back in chapter 4. He's again emphasizing that we eagerly anticipate eternal life consummated when the Lord comes for us. Or this is how Jesus put it in Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, place of favor, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Further down, verse 41, he says to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, these, those on the left, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. We've said a lot here today, and a lot that the world would think is just horrible to say that there's two only two categories of people in the world. One gets eternal life, one gets eternal punishment. Well, that's the truth because God said it. And I'm not going to lie to you. But the good news of the gospel is that God, though we deserved it in no way, we had no claim on God saving to save us. <laughs> we had no claim on God's grace. Nevertheless, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to become a man, to become one of us, so he could live a righteous life in our place, so he could take our punishment, die in our place, so he could rise from the dead to give us eternal life. And if you will believe, not just think those are true facts, but if you will put all your trust in that, if you'll throw yourself on Jesus personally, you have eternal life as a present possession even now. As Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? He says. I don't want to close without saying that. 
if you do believe in Jesus, be concerned for those around you who don't. Take care for their souls. Uh, They will not escape if they don't trust Christ before the day of judgment. So love their souls as the Lord loved your soul. Go after them. And tell them the truth they don't want to hear before it's too late to hear it. But if you're in Jesus, Jesus coming is not something to dread. Oh, what will he think of me? (laughs) Look, he loved you from all eternity. He died in your place. Jesus did. God the Father sent Jesus to die in your place. God is for you. And Jesus coming will be coming to get you to take to himself in eternal life. The sudden day of the Lord will be nothing but joy for those in Christ. But you need to know which side of that aisle you're on. You need to know if you are if you do belong to Christ by faith or if you are doing your own thing, living in the dark, not ready for the coming day. Let's bow together in prayer. Thank you, Father, for revealing your truth to us, revealing your very self to us, and help us to have open hearts and minds to it. Help us to respond appropriately. Those who may be here who have not bowed the knee to Jesus in faith and repentance, giving themselves to him, to be his people, to be forgiven by their sins, and cleansed from their sins by him, help them to respond in that way today. For most of us here who who do know the Savior, thank you, Father, that's not because we were better than anyone else. It's because of your grace. Help us to, to then have that helmet that is the hope of salvation. May it protect us as we have this solid conviction and joy in Christ's coming, his approaching coming, May that protect us from all the devil would throw at us that would crush our skulls in, so to speak. Thank you that you are with us, Lord Jesus, to the end of the age and that you, are, you have prepared a place for us and you will come again to receive us to yourself. May we live for that day and not for this day. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen.